Calling the twelve to him, Jesus began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. We have been seeing uh, and journeying along with Mark throughout this gospel as he has been introducing us in passage after passage to his central character, Jesus Christ. Mark wastes no time in, in expediting our encounter with this central figure. Mark, it's, it's, like I said last week, it's, it's almost like we're, we're scrambling to keep up with Mark as he's reporting these stories. 
Now, it may not be immediately apparent to you how our two passages today kind of connect, because you'll see, there, there's, you, you may have noticed as Tyson was reading, there, there are two kind of clear passages, and it may not be immediately obvious why, why are these in one sermon. And instead of an ex- explaining it on the front end, I'm going to just ask you to trust me. I'm going to ask you to, to suspend your disbelief, bear with me, because Mark is weaving his gospel with deliberate care. And what may immediately seem disconnected to us is not in the mind of God or his inspired author. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 6, verses 7 to 30. As those who bear God's truth, we should expect both acceptance and rejection. And faithfulness may cost us everything. As those who bear God's truth, we should expect both acceptance and rejection. And faithfulness may cost us everything. We're going to think about this in three points. First, the mission. Second, the flashback. And third, the platter. The mission the flashback, and the platter. First, the mission. Look there at verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, Jesus began to send them out two by two and give them authority over impure spirits. This scene was forecasted back in chapter 3, if you recall, when Jesus appointed the 12 apostles. And the idea there, the big idea of that sermon was that Jesus never sends us out without first calling us in, and he never calls us in without sending us out. And here we see that principle forecasted in chapter 3 playing out as Jesus commissions those he has chosen and called. Now, in order to interpret verses 7 to 13 rightly, we have to understand that this is not the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, establishing churches, and so forth. These aren't Jesus' marching orders throughout all time. This is a specific and temporary assignment. This isn't the Great Commission we've been entrusted with here at RCBC. It's, It's something more like a trial run. Jesus gives the apostles here authority over the demonic realm, over spirits that Mark calls, there in verse 7, impure. Impure, which implies that Jesus has arrived on a massive cleanup operation. It's, it's what he's come to establish in bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And in carrying out this specific task, the 12 apostles will be previewing The day, the coming day in God's coming kingdom when there will be no impurity whatsoever anymore. Notice he also sends them out in little teams, two by two, not simply for the sake of safety and companionship, but also in accordance with the principle in Jewish law. Deuteronomy 19, one witness is not enough to convict someone accused of a crime. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, Jesus is sending them out two by two and saying, what one of you proclaims, the other of you will be there to verify as legal witnesses of God's truth in the courtroom of heaven. 
So that's the general mission. Verse 8 gives the specific instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. When I was studying these verses, I couldn't help but think about this trend in American life in recent years promoting minimalism. You've heard of minimalism? Uh, whether it's Marie Kondo's best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, or the uh, popular book, Minimalism, which became the basis for a Netflix series, people are finding freedom. Who would have thought? Freedom and paring down their possessions and living with less. And in a country like ours, where the, the self-storage alone is a $40 billion a year industry, you can imagine that this idea of purging stuff is, is a, has novelty and intrigue. It does strike me, though, that only in a very rich nation can minimalism be a trend. In most places, it's called a way of life. Anyway, the, the Netflix series chronicles uh, these two authors' 10-month uh, book tour, and all they take on the book tour is one change of clothes and an assortment, you guessed it, of Apple devices. So it's kind of like the modern secular version of Mark 6, 8, and 9. But of course, Jesus is not after minimalism as a kind of trendy lifestyle habit. No, he's telling them what they ought to take so they will learn to trust in God's providential care. The fewer the provisions, the greater the faith required. Don't be so concerned, he's saying, don't be so concerned about the rejection you're going to face that you bring along just enough to fall back on if this Jesus thing doesn't work out. The power of your message, he's saying, is, is not going to come from you. Your dress, your appearance, the things you bring along. No, the power of your message is only going to come from me. It's interesting that the four items he does require, cloak, belt, sandals, staff, are the exact same four items that God commanded the Hebrews to take when they escaped from Egypt in Exodus 12. There is a new Moses now on the scene, and he is leading a new and greater exodus. Not just from Pharaoh or Caesar, but from sin and demons and death. And in the apostles' mission here, Jesus is saying, in your mission, judgment will be falling, not on Egyptians, but on Israelites if they don't repent. Verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. What does that mean? Well, he's saying this isn't some grand social outing where you're just going to be popping in to home after home for some light refreshments. Don't give the appearance that you're on a holiday. That's not what you're about. Stay in one place and trust God to provide Verse 11, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This practice, this, this kind of dramatic, acted-out parable was something that Jews would do upon leaving a Gentile country that they had visited. 
So as they were returning home, they would shake off any contamination that they had contracted during their visit. And again, Jesus is saying, you'll be entering Jewish homes, but encountering pagan-like rejection. Respond accordingly. And when you're rejected, not if, when you're rejected, just like I was in Nazareth, you can know in your heart that I am with you. And in other words, Jesus is saying, when you're rejected, just like I was, don't give up. Don't take your ball and go home. Don't succumb to a pit of just despair. Just reroute. Just go to another village and bring the message that I've entrusted to you. So the apostles traveled lightly and they spoke boldly. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. Verse 13, they drove out many demons and appointed and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. One brief application here before we, we move to point two. Notice that the apostles' assignment, and this gets to what I was saying at the beginning of the sermon, is going to give you part of the connection. The rest will come later. But notice that the apostles' assignment is sandwiched. Mark loves this sandwich technique. It's sandwiched between two rejection stories. Jesus in his hometown, we saw that last week, and John in Herod's court. Mark's point is clear. Whether it's impure spirits or inhospitable sinners, mission will provoke opposition. Mission will provoke opposition. Now, does this mean we'll always be opposed and rejected? Of course not. Just like these apostles, we will bear a message that will be welcomed by many. Many of you who are believers welcomed this message, not because you were any better than everyone else out there, but because God had his way in your heart. But we must prepare for both responses. We need to brace ourselves for, for both acceptance and rejection. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in a letter to one congregation. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So two categories. Those who are being saved, not those who are worthy and those who are unworthy. Everyone's unworthy. But those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And then he says, to the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. Same message, different aromas. Pharisees and Nazarenes rejected Jesus. Israelites rejected the apostles. And Richmonders will reject us. Welcome to Christianity. But we can take heart knowing that when our neighbors reject the gospel, and it may feel like they are rejecting us, they are not finally doing that. They're not finally rejecting us. They're rejecting God. 
We're, we're just mail carriers here in Richmond, delivering his mail. Our job is not to tamper with the mail. That's a federal offense. Our job is not to tamper with the mail. It's not to apologize for the mail. It's not to find our identity and well-being in their people's response to the mail. It's just to hand it over in love and leave the results to God. That's the mission. Number two, the flashback. The flashback. Starting in, verses, starting in verse 14 and going all the way through verse 29, Mark inserts a parenthesis. You can actually draw in your Bible, if you'd like, a parenthesis before verse 14 and after verse 29. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. All right, before we proceed, just, just notice something. Can't help myself. Verse 12, they went out and preached. Verse 13, they drove out many demons. So you'd expect verse 14 to read, Herod heard about this for they had become well known. They're the ones preaching. They're the ones driving out the demons. They're the ones doing all the work. But the more they traveled and spoke, the more famous someone else became. Oh, brothers and sisters, may this little detail be the story of River City Baptist Church as well. How magnificent would it be if, say, 12 months from now, the name of Jesus Christ, not necessarily RCBC, but the name of Jesus Christ was more known, more loved, more cherished, more famous in this city and in places around the world. Well, Herod's hearing more and more about this Galilean carpenter turned teacher, healer, miracle worker, and all kinds of theories to explain him are popping up. People trying to explain away Jesus is not a new thing. Middle of verse 14. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him, that is, Jesus Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, as readers of Mark's gospel, remember all the way back to February when we began, we already know that John was in prison. Mark told us in chapter 1. That his imprisonment, remember John's imprisonment, Mark 1.14, marked the launch of Jesus' public ministry. But in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, there's not been a single mention of John. He's completely been off the scene. And here we find out why. As Herod's court buzzes with talk of Jesus and proposals about who he is, Herod himself starts to feel haunted. Now, his conclusion is not what we would expect. His conclusion that Jesus must be John resurrected may seem illogical. Like, that's the best you can do, Herod? 
And it is illogical. I mean, when fear meets unbelief, logic is often the casualty of that encounter. But it also on one level makes sense because Herod is afraid in his illogical fear Herod thinks that John has returned in this Jesus person to torment him, to take revenge on him. Well, why? To help us understand, Mark provides a flashback. A flashback. Matthew and Luke actually recount the same story, but Mark's version is the longest, which is always significant Because Mark is typically the briefest. Verse 17, the flashback begins. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So what plunged John into prison, we learn here, is that he wouldn't stop protesting Herod's unlawful relationship. Not that it was unlawful in the eyes of Rome, but in the eyes of God. Leviticus 20, if a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. We actually know from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, not a Christian, that this woman Herodias wasn't only Herod's sister-in-law, but also his niece. She was the the wife of one brother and the daughter of another. And so the marriage was both adulterous and incestuous. It all sounds like some kind of ancient reality show, like keeping up with the Herodians or something. (laughs) I mean, just, um, just imagine for a moment the valor that it took in this context for John to, I mean, for, for John to tell Herod the truth. I think we take it for granted because John the Baptist is kind of this mythical, superhero, flannel graph sort of figure in our minds. But imagine, he was an ordinary guy. He didn't have to do this. John could have told the truth about Herod to others in private behind Herod's back. But he dared to go public. He dared to confront the most powerful person in his life. And of course, the reason he could do it is because Herod wasn't really the most powerful person in his life. I'm reminded of a story of an old Scottish preacher and King James, no, not LeBron, Uh, like the original uh, king of Scotland and England. Dale Ralph Davis recounts the story. James was notoriously rude when attending worship services. On one occasion, he was seated in his gallery with several attendants while Robert Bruce preached. In his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. Bruce paused. The king fell silent. The minister resumed, and so did James. Bruce ceased speaking a second time. Same result. 
When the king committed his third offense, Bruce turned and addressed him directly. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Let's close in prayer. That's pretty awesome. That's courage. That's speaking truth to power. That's a distant echo of John the Baptist and Herod's court. As one person put it, John is the photo negative of Herod in this story. John is the photo negative of Herod. He could not be bribed or threatened into saying less than God would have him say. And the person most enraged by John's boldness, threatened by him, enraged by him, is actually not Herod, it turns out. It's his sister-in-law and niece and now unlawful wife. Verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. If the gospel according to 1 Peter is something into which, a message into which angels long to look, surely Mark 6.20 is a verse into which psychologists long to look. Did you catch in verse 20, the range of conflicting emotions. It's dizzying. You almost have to take a little Dramamine just to read the verse. Look at that. Just verse 20. Herod fears John, and he respects John, and he's enamored with John, and he's puzzled by John, and he's threatened by John. What's clear is that Herod has never met someone like John. See, he's surrounded himself, like many kings, he's surrounded himself with people who only tell him what he wants to hear. And I have to wonder if he knew, if he just detected that here was the first person in his life who had ever dared to really tell him the truth. If you want to consider a sobering phrase, look at the end of verse 20. He liked to listen to him. Apparently, Herod was summoning John out of his cell, perhaps with increasing frequency, to to listen to him, to hear him out. He wasn't calling John out of his cell to play board games. He was calling him out so that John could preach to him. And the message, the, the point of every message was the same. Herod, you have sinned against God and you need to repent. But Herod loved John's sermon podcast. He had left a five-star rating and and a glowing review. He loved to hear this man talk, even if it felt uncomfortable at times. But though he liked to listen over and over and over again, the seed of the word was just bouncing off the hard-packed soil of Herod's heart. 
Friend, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this is a sober warning for you, especially as you sit here in a Christian church service. Just as this wicked king liked to listen to John, and I don't say this for effect, I say this because it's true, hell will be filled with people who liked to listen to Jesus. Hell will be filled with people who liked to listen to him. Do not, friend, take any confidence in being enamored with Jesus if his message doesn't change you. Mark's whole point is that the kingdom of God has arrived not for our entertainment, not even merely for our edification, but for our salvation. You need salvation above all else. You need to be rescued from the righteous wrath of God because of your sin. And here at RCBC, the most important message that we can convey to you is that you are not right with God. You are in the wrong before God because of your sin. But the good news is that he invaded history in the person of Jesus to make all things right for those who bow their knee to Christ in faith. And did you notice that the same message the apostles were entrusted with? Point one is the same message John was entrusted with. Repent. And friend, I'm still talking to you. If, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this message of repentance might sound terrible, but it's actually a really great, it's really great news because the, the, what repentance mean is, means is not try harder. That would be really bad news. Repentance doesn't mean try harder. It means turn around. That's something you can do this morning. You can do that in your seat. You can be made brand new by turning around, making a, a moral and spiritual U-turn in your heart, turning away from your sin and putting all of your trust in Jesus. Well, so far in the story, Herodias and by the way, Sebastian mentioned this earlier, but I want to reiterate, if you have any questions about what I just said, how you can be made right with God, how you can make that great turn away from sin and toward Christ and be saved, then this room is filled with people who would love to have that conversation with you. I'll be at the door in the back afterward. Don't hesitate to grab me or someone else and just say, hey, can you help me understand a little more about what the preacher meant at that one section of the sermon? Well, so far in the story, Herodias has been unable to persuade her husband to stop giving an ear to John, to stop summoning him out of the cell, to stop listening to this troublemaker. She wants to settle the score and get rid of him once and for all. And then one day, her moment arrives. That's point number three. So the mission, the flashback, and finally, the platter. Verse 21, finally the opportune time came. The opportune time, that is for Herodias. As one commentator explains, 
Herod's weakness of character and vacillating actions are exploded and exploited by Herodias. She is the prime mover in the story. Continuing in verse 21, On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This isn't a, a, just a cute girl doing the YMCA, okay? This is, this is a salacious and erotic scene. I, I won't describe it, but it's as wretched and exploitive as you can imagine. And Herod is really pleased with how things are going at his birthday party. The response of the crowd is not lost on him. He can tell they're impressed with this dancer, but most of all, with who? With him. This is his event. And so he playfully and pridefully ups the ante. Middle of verse 22, the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Whereas Jesus had said in verse 7, bring nothing. Now Herod says, ask for anything. It's a figure of speech that, that just means, girl, you have a blank check. I mean, you have really pleased us. What can we do to please you? You can imagine the smiles. You can almost hear the whispers among the crowd. What's she, what's she going to ask for? A horse? Some jewelry? Maybe a, maybe a trip? Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. No deliberation. Boom. This woman was ready. As one old preacher put it, she felt the only place where her marriage certificate could be safely written was on the back of John's death warrant. Verse 25, at once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Suddenly the, the smiles and the whispers become gasps. I mean, even if all of the Galilean elite top brass didn't recognize John's name, they may have, but even if they didn't, this was not the request they were expecting to hear from this girl. Verse 26, the king was greatly distressed. So it wasn't the request the the guests were expecting, and it wasn't the request Herod was expecting. He was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. Back in verse 20, we saw his conflicted thoughts, right? But we've now moved from a stirred conscience to a, a, a tortured one a tortured one. In the entire New Testament, one commentator asks, is there even one other passage that portrays more vividly the storm raging in a ruler's conscience? I can't think of one. 
just as Herodias finally got her moment to manipulate Herod. Oh, friends, this is Herod's moment. Finally, after hearing all of those sermons, this is his moment, his opportune time to finally repent. But in front of his fawning guests, he just can't bear the thought of losing face. He can't bear the thought of losing face, and so he chooses to lose his conscience instead. You know, a person's conscience, I think, is subject to a lot of misunderstanding, right? Because we know the conscience is important, but also it's not infallible. Only the Bible's infallible. So when should we listen to our conscience? When should we not? That, that's a longer discussion. Think about it like this, though. A, a conscience is kind of like a smoke alarm, It's possible to be broken in a couple of ways. An overactive smoke alarm is one that goes off when it shouldn't. An underactive smoke alarm is one that doesn't go off when it should. Some of you probably have overactive consciences. The thing is going off even though there's no smoke anywhere around. Maybe you have a scruple, maybe you think something's a sin, but your conscience needs to be educated according to God's word. Others of you, though, have another kind of broken conscience. There's smoke everywhere, and there's no sound coming from the ceiling. In Herod, we see the death, the slow-motion death of a conscience. From stirred to tortured to finally, the conscience, as it were, ends up on the platter. Herod, of course, doesn't get a pass here because he liked John. He doesn't get a pass because he he never repented. But you know who else doesn't get a pass? All those dinner guests. I mean, I realize they're not the main characters in the story. I realize that, that they are kind of just playing background roles But I promise you, if just one of them had spoken up, that would have been a foreground role. (laughs) They weren't forced to just play the, the role of silent observers, but they chose to remain silent. They don't say a word in the story. And one person points out that they're They don't say a word in the story. Indeed, they don't need to, for their influence is greatest when they're silent. That's profound. Their influence was greatest when they were silent, as they were silent. But they're critical to the outcome. For the girl, they're a fawning audience. For Herodias, they're the leverage to force Herod's trembling hand. And for Herod himself, they're a power block before whom every allegiance must be sacrificed. Oh, brother, Sister, if you're honest with yourself, you don't have to take stock of your whole life, just the last week or two. Are you more concerned about offending people or offending God? 
That question might sound a bit abstract. So, so let's get more practical. In your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, have you subtly and slowly turned down the volume on God's truth in order to maintain respect? Now, this is not a call to be obnoxious. Maybe you started turning down the volume with the best of intentions. Maybe you thought, hey, I'm going to play the long game here. This is called friendship evangelism. I am going to be wise and prudent, not, obno not obnoxious. I'm not going to shove truth down people's throat. So you started out with fine intentions, and you just thought, I'll, I'll wait for an opportune moment to present itself. But then weeks passed, and then months and now it's 2022, and it's been years. And at this point, you're not still turning down the volume because the knob won't go any further. You're, you're just, you've basically muted the voice of God in the lives of those around you. Even though he deployed you into that office, into that school, into that neighborhood to be his voice, let Christians, let's not blame our unbelieving friends and colleagues. They haven't muted the messenger. We have. My point in this application is, is not to scold. It's not to, to shame us. It's to remind us that here is our moment. Herod missed his moment to change. Here is our moment to turn the volume back up, not obnoxiously, but humbly and intentionally to turn the volume back up because you love them and they need to hear God's voice. Well, Herod is distressed, Mark tells us. What's he going to do? Verse 27, he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. So when it came down to it, John could either keep his conscience or his head, and he chose his conscience. And when it came down to it, Herod could either save face or save John, and he chose to save face. Herodias got what she wanted. Herod lost what he had. And John, well, he was promoted to the courts of heaven. Verse 29, on, and on hearing of his death, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the only act of decency in the whole story. And with it, Mark ends the flashback and closes the parenthesis. Unless we've forgotten about the apostles' mission, remember, shout out to point one, remember that? Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. John's death could not silence God's 
truth. Yes, the, the kingdom's advance will be threatened, but it will not be thwarted. But Mark, and here is what, what he's up to as, as a literary genius, an inspired genius, he has wrapped, did you notice? He has wrapped these reports of the apostles' mission around a tragic death to remind us that Jesus does not deploy disciples into a safe world. If we want to reckon with what it'll mean, perhaps even with what it will cost to follow Jesus, then we must reckon with the fate of John. So there's a sobering lesson and a, and a galvanizing one, right? On the one hand, we don't want to underestimate the opposition we'll face. Look at the story of John. On the other hand, we don't want to underestimate the power of God in the gospel to overcome that opposition. Look at verse 30. They, they come back and they report to him, not all the ways they'd failed, but all the ways they had seen the gospel triumph, even amid and pushing back that darkness. Well, in conclusion, there are only two passages in all of Mark's gospel that are not about Jesus. And both are about John. Chapter 1 and chapter 6. Chapter 1 reveals that he's the forerunner to Jesus' coming. Chapter 6 reveals that he's also the forerunner to Jesus' death. Chapter 6 won't be the last time that a ruler defers to the will of a crowd to have an innocent man killed. But for all the similarity between John's fate and Jesus' fate, there's a decisive difference. John died for the, because of the sins of others. Jesus died, yes, because of the sins of others, but ultimately he died for the sins of others. And, and, Verse 29, John's disciples gave his body a proper burial in the tomb. In the tomb where his body stayed. But Jesus' body wasn't so easily contained. And because he rose in the power of resurrection life, you can go forth this week into your home, into your workplace, into your school, into your neighborhood, you can go forth bearing his message with boldness and joy no matter what rejection you face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you both for the privilege of being your ambassadors and bearing your truth. But Lord, we also praise you for the privilege of suffering for the sake of your name. Lord, you have not called us to anything that you yourself have not gone through first. Give us the courage, the valor, and the faith to follow, not just in John's footsteps, but in yours until the day we see you face to face. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.